Welcome back. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm Umbreen Khan. If you're just joining, earlier in the broadcast, we heard from Father James Martin describing his prayer rituals and how he makes the Lenten season meaningful. This year, it began on February 23rd, Ash Wednesday. It's a time that many remember when Jesus was in the wilderness. But the rites and rituals of Lent are not universal for all Christians. To learn more, I spoke with American University professor Martin Oliver. He explains that while fasting during Lent is a tradition for Catholics and Orthodox Christians, it's not a common practice among Protestants. He explains. Catholic fasting, at least on the whole, is less about communal identity making and is more about a individual association or relationship with the body. And that uh, what does that mean? Well, Christianity is suspicious of the body. Right? Suspicious of the body? Of course, right? It's the source of sin. It's, it's ah. it is it is that thing that, that keeps us from God, right? So in Christianity, the body is the source of sin. And it is the wants and desires and impulses of the body that causes us to sin and thus be distant from God. So one fasts in order to discipline the body. If you can keep yourself from food, then surely you can keep yourself from sex or alcohol or whatever it might be that is your your, your sort of sinful downfall. And so one must discipline the body and control it. Mm-hmm. And if you can control it with something as... Uh, good and necessary as as food, right? Then perhaps you can also, if you've done your spiritual exercise, you're now prepared to deny yourself those other things that might be more tempting, but also destructive. And uh, along with the uh, disciplining of the body, there's also a remembering of God. So if you have taken away something from your life, from your eating, from your, you know, and fasting can take lots of different forms, right? My my mother-in-law will sometimes fast from playing games on mm-hmm. her phone, for, mm-hmm. right? But the idea, and, and I think she takes this seriously, as do lots of other Catholics, is that when you've taken away that pleasure or that distraction, you now have time for other sorts of things. And ideally, that would be for the contemplation of God, perhaps, or for charitable works, right? That you replace what is pleasurable, but perhaps if not inherently sinful, at least kind of ethically neutral, you replace that with something that is ethically positive or spiritually uh, redemptive or fulfilling. Is this a common tradition in all religious practices where fasting is a ritual, or are there some traditions that don't encourage fasting? I grew up in, in a Protestant church, and there was never a day of fasting. This was just not a thing, and I poked around a little bit. And By and large, Protestantism, I think for... For decades, if not centuries, fasting was just not a part of the tradition. I think there's some reasons for that. Yeah, what what are those reasons? What are, are there historical uh, context? What what was the cause? I, I think some of them are are a kind of anti-Catholic bias, and by that I mean this suspicion that fasting is a kind of work or works. Now, this has got a very theological okay educate here. me here. <laughs> Luther and Calvin and the rest of the reformists. The critique of Catholicism is that you could do good works to earn your way into heaven, be it the payment of indulgences or the saying of uh, the Hail Mary. Penance. Uh, you, do, you can do penance, right? You can do work to get your way into heaven or into God's grace. For the Protestants, it was faith alone. 
There is no working your way into heaven. And fasting would then be seen as a kind of work, right? You fast in order to show God that you're willing to do work, that you you somehow can earn God's grace, which is completely antithetical to the, the Protestant theological worldview, where it is God's grace and God's grace alone, faith and grace that could earn your way into heaven. So no amount of fasting would do you any good. About 61% of Catholics observe Lent, while only 20% of Protestants and 28% of evangelicals observe the season. That's according to a 2017 poll by Lifeway Research, a ministry of Lifeway Christian Resources affiliated with the Southern Baptist Convention. The idea of slowing down, taking time to appreciate what we eat, having a sense of mindfulness about our food— It's something that has arguably been lost in our busy, modern lives. Think about it. We eat at our desk. We stand while we eat. We skip meals. The picture of family mealtime without screens seems reserved now for special occasions and holidays rather than a nightly event. The rituals of preparing and sharing meals in a culture help anchor us to our families, our friends, and our communities. You're going to eat a meal together. Now, that may not sound like much, but I'm sorry to say when you're an evangelical, most evangelicals don't even know a Muslim or a Jew. They don't. And so as as baby cakes, as that may sound, it starts right there. That's Bob Roberts. He's the pastor of Northwood Church in Texas, talking about communal meals to break the fast. He's been very active in interfaith outreach and has really dedicated time to building friendships between his fellow evangelicals, and their Muslim neighbors. He sees the breaking of the Muslim fast during the month of Ramadan as an opportunity, however simple, to demystify, humanize, and educate. And he's not alone. That practice of breaking bread after a day of fasting is not unique to Islam. Many communities use sacred rites and rituals of meal sharing as a way to introduce and invite neighbors to learn more, including the Baha'i community. On March 1st, Baha'is around the world will begin the 19 days of fasting, in which they abstain from food from sunrise to sunset. In 2018, I was invited to join the Ewing Boyd family in Washington, D.C., to break the fast, and to learn about their family's spiritual journey that traced back to rural Illinois in the middle of the 20th century. Hello, my name is Abdul Karim Ewing Boyd. I am the husband of Angela Ewing Boyd, and so the son-in-law of Todd and Allison Ewing, and I'm the father of Zainab Ewing Boyd. And our daughter Satya is on the way back from wrestling. Our daughter Ananda is away at college, so she won't make it for dinner tonight. (laughs) Before I sit down to eat with the multi-generational Ewing Boyd clan, I want to give you a little overview on who the Baha'i are. It's a relatively small but global faith community of about 5 million members, with approximately 175,000 here in the United States. It's monotheistic and was founded in Iran in 1844. Now, although it began in the 19th century, Baha'is believe their faith is a continuation of the earliest monotheistic traditions, and as such, they revere the divine messengers associated with other religions, including Krishna, Zoroaster, Buddha, Abraham, Moses, Jesus, Muhammad, just to name a few. 
Baha'is believe that all world religions are part of God's teachings for humankind, and they place a high value on unity and equality. It should also be noted that in many countries, the Baha'i are persecuted. But here in the United States, the community has been growing. That was evident hearing the stories of how the different members of the Ewing Boyd family became Baha'i. Both of Kareem's parents became Baha'i in the 1960s during the Civil Rights Movement. He was a, a young black man who had just come back from Paris during the Vietnam War, serving in the military, and he came back home and was serving the community. And my mom was literally a, a barefoot hippie from, from California who had come to, to serve in, in Mobile because uh, a few months prior to that, uh, Baha'i youth had been encouraged to go serve. Angela was raised Baha'i by her parents, just like her husband, Karim. Angela's mom, Allison, learned the faith from her mother. My mother was born in 1918 in a very small farming town in Illinois. And so when she was 18, she went to work in the big city, Peoria, and she worked in a cafeteria there, and that's where she met some Baha'is. And she was especially drawn to them, I think, because of their interracial unity that they had and the representation. It just fascinates me when I think about this little town in Illinois that's pretty closed to a lot of things. It's a wonderful place. It's a magical place. But, you know, diversity in a lot of ways is, is a challenge for them. Allison's husband, Todd, shared a similar story on how the faith's emphasis on racial equality appealed to his father, who became Baha'i in the late 1940s. My dad rejected Christianity relatively early because of the racial dimensions of things. These Christians were doing these bad things to black people. Not in the name of Christianity necessarily, but they were Christians doing this. They were the only black family in their town. So he experienced a lot of prejudice, racism, and so he developed an uneasy relationship with religion. And so he, he pretty much had discounted religion as anything viable for him for quite some time until, you know, he had an experience in, in, in the war. <laughs> where he, he wasn't almost killed, but something shook him. And when it did, he said, oh, my God. And so that kind of began his opening to I didn't talk to him in detail about this, but I'm sure the oneness of the human family, the elimination of racial prejudice, all these things had to resonate with his spirit and his soul, given what he had experienced. For Todd, the message and mandate to foster harmony among people continues in his volunteer work in the community. He says it's based on Baha'i scripture. There's very explicit teachings. It's not just like the oneness of the human family. It's elimination of racial prejudice. And there's some specificity around even what groups have to do to address that within themselves and some specificity about what we have to do as communities to address it. And Todd says that requires taking a journey as a person. Not trying to paint a, this perfect picture that as, Baha'i, as people become Baha'is, just like when they become anything else, once you believe in a tenant, then you spend your time trying to rid yourself of whatever baggage you brought with you through your spiritual understanding. Perhaps there's no better time to work on getting rid of that baggage than during a period of spiritual contemplation, such as the 19-day fast that makes up the last month of the Baha'i calendar. The last day is followed by a celebration of the new year, much like Yom Kippur in Judaism. Todd's son-in-law, Karim, says it's a time to look inward. 
you are bringing yourself to account at the end of one year and really preparing yourself for the launch of another year. There's no better time to really focus on who you are and who you want to be than those 19 days. It's really a wonderful kind of spiritual springtime that happily, if you're in the Northern Hemisphere, also goes along with the physical springtime that's outside. It's also a time for a busy family to pause and come together, says Todd. We have six or seven people in this house at different times in terms of our intergenerational family, going many different directions, and so eating meals together doesn't always happen, but I think it happens a lot more during the fast, and so that's very nice. What's not nice for Todd's 13-year-old granddaughter, Zainab, is that while she's too young to be part of the fast, she still feels it. When other people are fasting, you automatically don't eat as much because, like, nobody in the house is cooking. (laughs) So you're like, well, I guess I'll just not eat right now. As the sun sets behind us, Angela draws the drapes closed, and Zainab reads a special prayer as the family prepares to break the fast. Oh, my Lord, make thy beauty to be my food and thy presence my drink and thy pleasure my hope. And my we move now to the dinner table set for the evening feast, which Angela describes. We have um, lentil soup and we have cornbread and we have salad and we have some kind of fried rice. As we eat and share stories, I notice that everyone is eating slowly. I'm actually a little self-conscious at this point, wondering if I, having not fasted, inhaled my dinner too quickly. I'm curious if this is their normal pattern or unique to the 19-day fast. Angela says she's purposely being mindful in her eating. One of the gifts of the fast and one of the objectives is this period of slowing down and sort of realigning our spirits you know, with God. And I think for me, one of the biggest challenges is this notion of slowing down, like, because that's really how you can receive those gifts. But the pace of life doesn't really allow for that. And so, you know, there's this tension between what's required by our lives and also the adjustment that we're trying to make in our inner lives during this period of pacing ourselves and reflecting. This struggle is real for daughter Satya. This is her first year fasting. She is 15, but she continues to participate in all her normal activities, school and after school. Satya wrestles, and wrestling is known for its grueling workouts. It was fine until I got to wrestling practice. I might have to change some things and maybe drink a little bit of water during the day because I was exhausted (laughs) but yeah I mean it says it's like very open to interpretation and says like if you're doing heavy labor Mm -hmm. so I might interpret that (laughs) speaking of exceptions the Baha'i faith like other traditions have restrictions against fasting like age travel undue hardships and health which apparently causes some debate in the Ewing Boyd household And so there are often debates about whether or not someone is ill. In other words, (laughs) in other words, we think sometimes we think someone in our family shouldn't be fasting, right? Because they're ill. Yes, but they continue to fast. Yeah, it's not the other way around when we try to get out. It might seem strange to some people that the family doesn't want to take an out, but I understand. From my own experiences when I've been unable to fast during Ramadan, I feel like I'm missing out. Todd gets it. You get into that rhythm over time and it almost 
it's not biological, but it almost feels like if it doesn't happen, you miss it, like something physically happens. Still, Todd and son-in-law Kareem say the physical part of fasting isn't the main focus, nor the greatest challenge. There are occasionally moments when it feels like, oh my gosh, I'm so hungry. But when you really think about it, I mean, we're, we're talking about 12 hours. That's... <laughs> Abstinence from food is just kind of symbolic in a way, right? Of You're not in any real danger. Yeah. You ate this morning, you'll eat tonight. There's, there's no real danger. Yeah. Right? But it's a spiritual discipline. Like, the thing I think about a lot during the fast is, you know, what am I working on? You know, where was I this time last year? And, you know, am I making progress? And do I feel more disciplined in the areas I feel like I need to be? Whether it be just, just being a better person, being more patient, being more loving. About being kind in traffic. Have I learned what Thich Nhat Hanh says? When somebody cuts me off and I just say, may you be happy, may you be filled with kindness and peace. Even though it's more of a spiritual discipline, Allison says she values the physical experience of her stomach grumbling. Definitely the hunger pains during the day are a reminder to pray even you know if it's a short little prayer in my mind as I'm walking you know some days it's easy maybe to try to be really keep yourself really busy and don't think about your hunger or whatever and as a result you may not also be you know calling on your spiritual nature to get through things so I try not to have many days during the fast that I'm just coasting through and Todd would tease us sometimes. Some of us would try to eat so much that we that we wouldn't feel hunger for the rest of the day. And we do try to eat enough, you know, so that we will have enough energy to get through the day without being real crabby. But I do realize now that it's probably counterproductive to try to eat so much that, <laughs> that you don't experience hunger. Allison says there's another important reason to feel that hunger. It makes me more aware of people that don't have access to food. You know, like Cream was saying, we're going to eat at the end of the day, but knowing so many people that don't have that privilege and just having a tiny little inkling of what it feels like when, you know, people are eating all around you and you're not. I, I think that's definitely a benefit of the fast. I asked Angela what she looks forward to accomplishing during the 19-day fast, and her focus is internal. I probably set more intentions than I could, <laughs> could reasonably fulfill in kind of all the domains of my life, and parenting, and my professional life, and my marriage, but especially, you know, kind of spiritual qualities. And um, being compassionate and fearless was sort of my, the one that came to me most recently in prayer. Dinner's over, slices of oranges and cookies with hot tea end our meal. I wonder if the family will miss this season marking the end of their religious year. It sounds like for Todd, he already does. The fast I love. I'm glad when it comes and I'm sad when it's over because I just feel like there's a level of discipline I have that I'm more conscious of. As the Ewing-Boyd family cleans up the dinner table and readies for another day of work, school, and sports, they are also preparing to wake up before sunrise to share another meal before another day of fasting.
This segment first broadcast in 2018 and was produced by Stephanie Lecce. This year, the Baha'i Month of Fasting begins on March 1st and will end on March 20th. To learn more about the tradition and the practices associated with the fast, please visit this week's show notes at interfaithradio.org for links and background on the Baha'i Faith. That's all for this week's show. If you missed any part, you can stream it online at interfaithradio.org. While you're there, you can also learn about us, read the show notes, sign up for our newsletter, and explore the archives. You can find our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or really the podcaster of your choice. Just search Interfaith Voices. And while you're there, help us out. Leave a rating and a review. It helps others find us. A special thanks to MC Yogi for our theme music, additional music by Blue Dot Sessions, and a special thanks to our founder, Maureen Fiedler. This week's episode was produced by Kevin McCarthy. Inspired is a production of Interfaith Voices. We're a nonprofit and we rely on the generous support of our listeners to bring you this show. I'm your host and executive producer, Umbreen Khan. Remember to stay safe, stay well, and stay connected. I'll see you next week. <laughs>